Hey, it's Anita and this is the Anita Posh Show. Hello everybody and welcome to the Anita Posh Show where it is my pleasure to keep you up to date with topics around Bitcoin on a global stage and also the local impact it has on people like you and me. Today's guest is Eden Jago. He's a neuroscientist and an entrepreneur who found Bitcoin about nine years ago and turned his career around to work in the Bitcoin space. Now he is with Sovereign, a DeFi project on top of the Bitcoin network. And we're going to talk about what DeFi is, what NFTs are and why they are building on the Bitcoin blockchain and not on Ethereum or another blockchain. As always, you can watch this interview on YouTube. Please subscribe to the channel now or you can listen to it in your favorite podcast player. Please be sure to subscribe to the Anita Posh Show RSS feed. And now a short word from my sponsors and then on to the show. Enjoy! Local Bitcoins is an easy, fast and safe way to buy and sell Bitcoin directly from person to person. Join Local Bitcoins to bring Bitcoin everywhere and secure your financial freedom. Winter is ending, spring is coming, but your crypto storage shouldn't melt like snow and keep cool. The safest way of storing cryptocurrencies long term is offline in a physical way. That's why Coinfinity developed the Card Wallet, the professional cold storage solution. The Card Wallet supports various security features, such as high-quality materials and tamper-proof features, which prevent the manipulation of the card. Get yourself a Card Wallet now. You will get 20% off if you order at cardwallet.com slash anita. That's cardwallet.com slash Anita. Do you want to stay up to date with the things that happen in Bitcoin from my point of view? Then subscribe to Anita's Weekly, my newsletter with articles, videos, quotes, short tips on how to use Bitcoin and all that for free. Subscribe to Anita's Weekly at anita.link slash weekly. Hello and welcome, Eden Jago. Great that you're here. I'm honored to have you on. And we are going to be talking about Sovereign, a new platform on top of the Bitcoin network, as far as I understand. But before we do that, please introduce yourself to our listeners. What have you done before you co-founded Sovereign? My background is in neuroscience. I, having done a degree in neuroscience, took the ideas of machine learning and started two biotech companies. And while I was working on my second biotech company, I was reading about different types of network science papers. And I came across this paper, which was written by this guy called Satoshi Nakamoto. And I started the paper uh, with a relatively normal life and ended the paper with everything, all of my plans completely upside <laughs> down because... This was the winter of 2011, and I became convinced as I was reading it that this was potentially the most important thing that I was going to see in the next, maybe the rest of my life, because <laughs> I thought it would change the way we deal with the digital world. It would create digital commodities, digital scarcity, which maybe today makes sense, but if you try and think 10 years ago, the idea of digital and scarcity together in the same sentence made zero sense. And and I and, and the thing that most attracted me to it was that it provided the gateway to financial and monetary freedom for anyone in the world. And so I became convinced it was going to be very important. And I emailed all my friends telling them that they had to get involved and that probably this was going to be the most important asset. I, I, mean, I said to them, it's a huge risk, but if I'm right, this is going to be the most important asset in the world. And so they all very quickly ignored me. <laughs> and 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 I've been involved in Bitcoin ever since. I had very little money at the time because I was I, my my company wasn't doing so well, and so I took what money I had and I I moved to San Francisco to try and get involved in in the digital asset space. And I've been working with Bitcoin ever since. 
Oh, that's interesting. And what did you do in Silicon Valley? Because Silicon well, Valley doesn't really get Bitcoin as far as I know. Um, well, I didn't go to Silicon Valley because I thought it got Bitcoin. I, I went to Silicon Valley because I thought they got commercializing digital assets. Specifically, I went and joined a company called Zynga, which was a company which was very poor on ethics, but very, it was the leading company in the world in terms of getting mainstream users to use, to buy digital property. They basically had Farmville and Words with Friends and Frontierville and all of the different real games. And people spent huge amounts of time of their lives trying to get these digital assets. And what was particularly interesting to me is which people. It wasn't young people only. It was, in fact, the largest user base was sort of uh, housewives from the Midwest and Filipino housewives. And it was like the most, I think if you get sort of housewives involved, you're pretty much about as mainstream as you can get. So I wanted to learn how they were doing that because I wanted to do the same thing for what I saw coming for Bitcoin. So I spent a couple of very interesting years at Zynga, went through the shaping of the company from a very fast growing startup to one of, to the most valuable game company in the world, went through an IPO, helped make it one of the first companies to accept Bitcoin as a payment mechanism. And then I, at the same time, and ever since have been involved in a number of different initiatives, a lot of them on the sort of more regulatory side, because I'm a masochist apparently. So I set up a company to help provide exchanges that were getting shut down with payment rails that was called BXIL. I set up a company which worked with banks to use Bitcoin as a settlement mechanism and then ended up mostly doing remittance payments globally using Bitcoin. That was called Epifite. And I helped set up uh, a group called Data, the Digital Asset Transfer Authority, which was the first Bitcoin lobbying group. And I suppose the real reason I went and did most of these regulatory things is because my theory was always we need to keep the regulators distracted long enough before so that this can get too big to kill. And so I, I think if I had to go back again and do it, I would probably just start an exchange. <laughs> but, <laughs> but at the time, that seemed like the most important mission that someone could be doing that not enough people were working on. And would you start a decentralized exchange? I don't think the technology was available back then. And it's been a source of undying frustration for me that there hasn't been a decentralized exchange for Bitcoin for about 10 years now. Because the thought of taking a sovereign asset and handing it over, like the first thing you do is hand it over to an intermediary has always mm -hmm. made me want to kill myself. I've just never, I've just, I've never sold a Bitcoin. You never sold one? I've never sold a Bitcoin. Okay. Uh, and but I'm, you're using it and you're spending it also you're not spending I, it I, I i've lived very poor for a long time just because i was stacking sets like <laughs> at one point <clears throat> i was living in somebody's closet because i just didn't want to spend money on rent <laughs> <laughs> i almost understand that really i almost understand so I, after a while that got a bit old and i'm not that extreme anymore but <laughs> any bitcoin that i've purchased i've never sold and and one of the reasons was i refuse to try to use a, a, a centralized service it's the fastest way to give up your sovereignty over your assets and your privacy and basically the goal of bitcoin is to be self-sovereign and to hold your own keys to your bitcoin yeah and, and I, for, exactly for me that's an extremely personal mission my, my family uh, have been on the wrong side of authoritarian regimes many times. And every single time, the first thing that the authoritarian regime does is go after your money. They confiscate your bank accounts. They introduce capital controls. They tell you you can't have precious metals anymore. And then once they've stripped you of your assets and therefore your power, because really the only form of power in the world is money. Right? Weapons are nice, but you pay for them with money. Once they've stripped you of your power, then they do whatever they want with you. And so for me, it's an extremely personal mission to make sure that I, my family, and everyone else in the world have financial sovereignty. From which countries are you speaking of? My family is Jewish, and they were okay. mostly started in the Holocaust. Then mm -hmm. I grew up in South Africa, in apartheid South Africa, and my family was associated with the ANC. And so they were the, the apartheid government declared them to be terrorists, and they had to part of them had to flee in the middle of the night. I had to smuggle gold out of the country when I was a very young boy in order to get money to my family. My grandfather was arrested by the, the Soviets in 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 
on, in the red square for handing out anarchist pamphlets. My, my family are troublemakers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I'm very proud of it. Of, of my heritage in that respect. But the good thing and the bad thing about being troublemakers is you really get to see the face of government. Mm, that is true. And we always tend to forget that basically more than the half of the population of the world is living in authoritarian uh, regimes. Yeah, and, 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 and depending on your definition of authoritarian, it's potentially much more. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. And I've been to Zimbabwe last year to basically look how people really have to live there under the pressure of this kleptocracy, kleptocracy regime. And if Bitcoin can help them, and of course it can, but they are not ready. So like the technology, the internet connection and all other kinds of things. Most people are not ready to use Bitcoin, but I think Like 99% of them are using uh, mobile uh, money for transactions. So it will only be a small jump for them from mobile money to using Bitcoin. I don't know if they'll necessarily use... I don't think they're going to use Bitcoin in the same way that people don't walk around the street with gold bars. But the ability to use different payment mechanisms around Bitcoin, and in particular stable coins, which are backed by Bitcoin... I think is extremely valuable and is likely to be the way most people interact with Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. But savings, people in Zimbabwe, they know how to manage their day-to-day. They know how to pay for bread. They know how to take the bus. Mm -hmm. What they struggle with, what anyone in any confiscatory inflationary regime struggles with is savings. Mm -hmm. And Bitcoin is is extremely powerful for that. And But the critique of stable coins is very often the fact that they are bound to US dollars or other kind of fiat currency, and therefore they are also inflating. Don't you see that also as a problem? Sure, but it's let's say we had a Bitcoin-backed dollar, which was competing with the Federal Reserve for issuing dollars. Initially, it would compete just for the issuance, and, and the Bitcoin would trade at par. So the Bitcoin-backed dollar would trade at par with the Federal Reserve dollar. But once you've got a sovereign mint, there's nothing to, like in your first year, you have 14% inflation. The sovereign mint in the algorithm, the decentralized governance can say, all right, uh, we're just going to freeze our dollar at uh, 2022 prices. And, and now everyone can choose which dollar do you want to use? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. You mentioned working with regulators before, that you like to work with them, but it seems you like to work with them to distract them. I don't like working with them. The way I kept on thinking about it was uh, taking one for the team. (laughs) I think it was, on a personal level, it was a mistake. It was years of suffering, doing pretending to be someone that I wasn't wearing suits. And also, I wasn't also doing the most lucrative things I could potentially be doing. But it, it... it was extremely important to me to try. And, and, and I think the real reason it was a mistake. It turns out that most of my efforts were unnecessary. The, the, the only thing that really mattered was uh, the fact the price went up. And so that everyone wanted to jump in on it eventually, right? The banks and the corporates of the world. But, but, but at the time, it was extremely uncertain what the future of Bitcoin would be. And I did manage to get the world's largest banks to start experimenting with using Bitcoin as a settlement mechanism. I helped change the rules in several countries. It was, it was a very big lesson that sometimes you have to do hard things to get things done, but also that I never want to go into politics. Yeah, <laughs> I understand that. I couldn't too. Don't you see this also as a kind of a problem? Maybe when those big banks, like I think Morgan Stanley announced today that they are going into Bitcoin, the Michael Saylors and Elon Musks of the world and all those big banks that were actually responsible for the crisis in 2008, if they are going into Bitcoin, don't you think that they are going to bow basically before the regulators and try to regulate Bitcoin the way that it profits them and not like people like we want them to profit from like money the money of the people zero doubt that they will what of course course they're going to try and do that yes and it's not just it's not just them it's not just the sailors of the world it's Kraken Coinbase they're looking to do IPOs, they're going to have shareholders, they're going to have board members appointed by the by, by those shareholders, they're going to have substantial regulatory pressures, they are going to also for 
regulatory for reasons of regulatory pressure, but also because the best way that you capture a market is get the regulators to make sure that no one else can enter it. So I actually think that Bitcoiners up until now have had a really easy time of it. Like you've just had to hold Bitcoin and watch yourself get rich. Like, yeah, every now and again, there's a bear market and uh, that's it, right? But there's been no real challenge. The regulators haven't really tried to stop Bitcoin in any substantial way. There hasn't really been a, a substantial competitor. And, and so we do, we, we as a sort of a community have done what every single community in the history of mankind has ever done in the absence of an external threat. We've turned inwards and started tearing each other apart. And not just us, sort of anyone who is in the crypto space. The, the, the people that Bitcoiners hate the most are shitcoiners, altcoiners. That's not really the enemy. Those shitcoins and altcoins, at the end of the day, they're basically a gateway into the crypto space and in particular into the Bitcoin space. The real enemies, I think, are going to be the centralized intermediaries to whom we give up our power. It's going to be the large exchanges, the lending platforms, the, the custodian platforms, because what they're going to want, what their regulator, regulator is going to try and help them get is to persuade you that for convenience or for security, you should give up your Bitcoin so that the supposed, so that the only interesting property of Bitcoin, which is the sovereignty or self-control, is something you give up. And then if you're distracted by the price gains, you won't even notice. And what do we do to fight that? I think what's important to do is to, so there's, there's a very important meme, which we try to educate people about, which is not your keys, not your coins. But that meme is, is only a slogan. If there's nothing you can do with Bitcoin except for keep it in a cold wallet if you want to keep your sovereignty, which is why a lot of Bitcoiners and myself included are currently working and have recently launched a platform called Sovereign, which is it's basically an additional, it's an extension of Bitcoin functionality so that you can do trading lending, options, futures, all of these different things that you might want to do, Bitcoin-backed stablecoins, right? Without having a central intermediary, it's a decentralized financial platform for Bitcoin. And so if Bitcoin is the decentralized self-sovereign monetary layer, what we're doing with Sovereign is we're expanding that so that now Bitcoin also has a decentralized self-sovereign financial layer. Mm -hmm. So... Many people will ask, but why do you build this on top of Bitcoin? And why do you not use Ethereum or another blockchain for that? Because they already are doing it. We are using a different blockchain. It's an ex the, the, the blockchain that we're working on is called Rootstock, and it's an extension of Bitcoin. It's not the Bitcoin blockchain. It's mm -hmm. a side chain. In other words, mm -hmm. it's a separate chain, which is also guarded, protected, secured by the Bitcoin miners. It also uses Bitcoin as its native asset. And the reason that we're not using Ethereum is, well, there are lots of little reasons. Ethereum is too expensive to use for the vast majority of people right now, and we want everyone to be able to use this. Ethereum um, has had less of an ideology or sort of culture of security than Bitcoin. Those are the little reasons. The big reason is because the only asset that has been created in the crypto space which currently has the properties of a reserve asset and could become the reserve asset of the world is bitcoin it is where the liquidity is it is where the the greatest pool of value is and it's also where the vast majority of users are And uh, and it's also where the most secure network is, right? Bitcoin proof of work is orders of magnitude, more hash power than, in fact, all of the other chains put together. The, the reason is because the Bitcoin is the center of this entire space. If people wonder why is Ethereum going up? Why is Cardano going up? Why is... Why do all of these things seem to go up and down at the same time? It's because they orbit Bitcoin. It's really the only, they're, they're, they're shadows of the Bitcoin price. They're shadows of the Bitcoin ecosystem. They're shadows of the Bitcoin philosophy. They have a lot of value that they've provided, right? It's not, Bitcoin is the sun. doesn't mean that the earth isn't valuable, right? <laughs> But it's not the center.
of gravity. And we are looking to expand upon and build upon the center of gravity. Mm -hmm. And how can people who are not so deep into the technology, but can you maybe explain how Sovereign as a decentralized platform is able to do this without having a centralized actor, like a company or something? Maybe you are a company, but a without a centralized platform in the middle. Yeah, so first of all, we're not a company. There isn't a company behind mm -hmm. uh, Sovereign. Second, how it works is imagine... So what is an intermediary, right? Let's say I want to trade on an exchange, a centralized exchange. It's, there's this old joke about Eisenhower and he's touring the troops and he's, go, he's there with his wife. And his wife sees the troops with these phones with antennas, like the World War II phones. And they, they don't have a, a cable attached to them. But she sees them talking to each other. She goes up to Eisenhower and she says, this is amazing. Those phones, they don't have... I don't have wires. I don't have any idea how they work. And Eisenhower says to her, and the ones with the wires, how they work. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little bit like, all right, like, I don't know how the decentralized exchanges, but how do, do a lot of people, I think, also don't actually think about how the centralized exchange works. So how, what is actually happening with centralized exchange? You're, you're going to a, a service provider. You're giving them your Bitcoin and someone else is giving them dollars and then you say i want to sell my bitcoin and then the other person says i want to trade my dollars and and then there's supposed to be a set of rules that the exchange uses like the first for example a rule the first person to say they want to sell their bitcoin is going to be matched with the first person who says they want to sell it and then and when that happens i'm going to give this guy the bitcoin and i'm going to give the other guy their dollars but that's a rule now the exchange may operate according to the rules and not according to the rules but it's basically a rule way a decentralized exchange works is exactly the same thing except there's no man in the middle there's just a set of rules and those set of rules are basically a software program and what you do is you go to the software program you say i want to sell my bitcoin and you give the right to sell the bitcoin to the software program and if you change your mind you take it back now only you can do that right so you remain in control of your bitcoin and someone else comes with a stable coin and they say i want to sell my stable coin Right? And then the, the program sees, all right, someone wants to sell, someone wants to buy, it matches them and transfers the funds. So it's exactly the same thing, but automated and not automated by a computer, which sits on a server at an exchange, but automated by a program which runs on all of the different nodes of the blockchain and is secured by all of the different miners. So it's basically the same process as when you're sending someone a Bitcoin, except this time, You're sending someone a book and getting USD in return. Mm -hmm. And the software basically are like smart contracts on the blockchain, uh, on the rootstock uh, blockchain? Yeah, that's exactly what they are. So what a smart contract is, right? And the reason I, use, I say a program is because that's basically what a program is. The reason they call them smart contracts is because they're self-executing contracts, right? They're a set of rules which also execute themselves. Mm -hmm. And they don't actually execute themselves. They're executed by the miners in the same way that a transaction on Bitcoin is executed by the miners. It's just that the miners have no choice in the matter. Mm -hmm. And through the decentralization, I guess it's not possible for authorities to get a, whole, a hold of the system. They can't stop it. And maybe, I guess, also you're not a company so that there is no centralized company that authorities could turn off. Is that right? That's correct. There's no one who can turn off the system. There, you can. So actually, the way our system is currently designed is there, there, there are parties who can stop trades on the system in case something goes wrong. But the community, right, the, the stakeholders of the system can always restart it. And no one can take your funds. So yeah, so it's designed to be uncensorable. It's designed to be incorruptible. Mm -hmm. and transparent yeah and how are the the actors the community how are you all organized how does this work how do yeah, you work so together very good question but we take advantage of the greatest coordination technology ever invented which is blockchain so what is blockchain why does it even exist it's It only exists for one purpose. It's for the purpose of coordinating between parties without the need for those parties to know each other or trust each other The way our system does it is it uses the base layer of the Bitcoin proof of work. And then on top of that, because we are an application layer, we need to 
be able to make application type decisions. And there's a coordination tool, all right, a token called SOV, which is the coordination token of the system. And users can say, I would like to have influence over the system, so I'm going to lock up my tokens. The longer they lock up their tokens for, the more voting weights they have. So it aligns the incentives of the people who are participating in making these decisions for the long term. The more you're thinking long term, the more influence you have. And then various decisions around what the system can do basically require these participants to use that weight that they've collected, that voting weight they've collected. They can vote on it and and make decisions on how the system is going to work. And so far, there have been 12 such votes. So it's a very democratic system. No, it's not a democracy because a democracy is powered by the people, mm-hmm. but with the assumption one man, one vote. Mm-hmm. In our system, we don't have men or women. We don't know who is who. So it's totally pseudonymous. It's not one man, one vote. But it's also not one token, one vote. Instead, it's the more you have locked up economic interest in the system for the long term, the more vote, the more influence you have. It's, uh, so we call it the bitocracy, right? It's a, it's a system of governance which is a little bit like an aristocracy, Right. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not designed for everyone to be equal. It's designed for those who are most interested, most engaged, most involved to have the most influence. Mm-hmm. Most involved. So you don't have to have the the most money. You have to be most engaged in a way. No, having more money helps because you're putting more at risk. But it's effect it's two factors. It's how much sort of money you've put in and how long you have put it in for. How much liquidity are you giving up? And so those two factors. And how far are you in starting the platform? Running now. People can go and check it out. Right now, you have to get whitelisted to use it, but you can use the testnet freely. And the whitelist we're hoping to remove over the next few weeks. And so you can go and register to get like early access or just wait to get mainnet access. And I assume it's without KYC. So I can do this pseudonymous. How does it Correct. work? There's no one who can... KYC you. So for KYC, you need to have someone who can tell you you can join or not join. There's no one like that in the system. Okay. And can I buy Bitcoin on your platform? You can. So right now you would need to get like stable coins or some other token, but we are, we've got different people who are looking to partner to also provide fiat gateways as well. Mm-hmm. So they will do the conversion for you. Mm-hmm. And can you please explain to me and our listeners how Bitcoin lending works because I think uh, there are a lot of platforms or maybe some platforms where the lending actually is very risky because you can lose your Bitcoin. How is this working in your case? Yeah, so the way the way a decentralized system is different from a centralized system when it comes to lending is that centralized systems basically you have to trust the provider. It's it's effectively a fractional reserve, right? So like a big hedge fund who want to borrow Bitcoin will come and they'll say, let me borrow the Bitcoin, this is my credit rating, and you know, I'll, I promise to pay you back. In a in sovereign and in basically every other decentralized system, the way it works is someone who wants to borrow have to put collateral up. So for example, if they want to borrow one Bitcoin worth of value, they would have to put in one and a half Bitcoin worth of, let's say, stablecoin collateral. And what that means is that they can't just run away with the Bitcoin because they will lose more than they stand to gain. And if they do run away because they can't do maths, then the people who lent to them actually make more money than if they get paid back in the normal way. Mm -hmm. Maybe a silly question, but if I can put in one and a half Bitcoin as a collateral and then lend one Bitcoin, I still have to pay back the one Bitcoin Where does it come from? Usually you wouldn't put in... So you actually can put in Bitcoin to borrow more Bitcoin. But most users put in some other asset to borrow Bitcoin or they put in Bitcoin to borrow other assets. So for example, we were talking about the fact that I used to live in a closet. Now I live in an apartment. Uh, One way to pay for an apartment is to take your Bitcoin and you borrow dollars with the Bitcoin as collateral. Now I... I joke that I live in my apartment for free. Why? Because I put Bitcoin down, I borrow money, 
and I borrow 5% a year. Bitcoin appreciates 400, 500, 1000% a year. So it pays for itself, right? Mm -hmm. So in the end of the day, so that, that's why I don't live in a closet anymore. I understand that, but what do you do when you're in a bear market with Bitcoin? When you're in a bear market, it's actually even better because people are more are willing to pay you more to borrow your Bitcoin in a bear market than in a bull market. Because the one of the main use cases for borrowing Bitcoin is to go short Bitcoin. So mm -hmm. some people, if they think the price is going to go down, they want to borrow Bitcoin because they think they can borrow it today at one price, sell it for $10,000 and tomorrow buy it back for $8,000 mm. pay back their loan. So you actually get more money in a bear market than you do in a bull market. Yeah, but it's also very risky, isn't it? No, I don't think so. I mean, shorting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> If someone wants to short Bitcoin, that's their problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I never understood that. Okay, okay. And now, the fact of the week, sponsored by Local Bitcoins. Often you hear people talking about hot and cold Bitcoin wallets. The wallets don't have a different temperature in the usual meaning of the word, but they describe how close the Bitcoin in these wallets are for being bought and sold. Bitcoin in hot wallets are often in exchanges and therefore highly liquid, whereas Bitcoin in cold wallets haven't been moved in a while and for this reason they are perceived to have a lower temperature. The most famous cold Bitcoin are the over 1 million Bitcoin still in Bitcoin creators Satoshi Nakamoto's control. Nakamoto disappeared in 2010 and the Bitcoin in his control haven't moved ever since. Thanks to local Bitcoins for the fact of the week. And you also have a term, it says liquidity on your website. What do you mean by that? Yeah, Yeah. so you can, um, when people trade, remember we, we spoke about the, the software program, which takes dollars from one person, gives it to Bitcoin to someone else. You don't want to have a situation where I come to the platform and I say, I want to sell my Bitcoin and somebody, and now you wait. It's like an empty room, you wait. And now two hours later, someone comes and says, I want to sell dollars. And you instead, what you want is you want it to be instantaneous. And so what you can do is you can act as a market maker. You can put your Bitcoin in or your dollars in, and they will be in that contract. And then when somebody comes and says, I want to buy Bitcoin, it uses the funds that you already put in and gives them the Bitcoin and takes the dollars. And it earns a fee, and you earn that fee. Mm -hmm. And this can happen sometimes several times a second. And so every single second, you can be earning fee, and it can be an extremely profitable business. And in the traditional world, there are major companies like hedge funds that what they do primarily is make markets. So if you think about Robinhood, Robinhood mm -hmm. is free. Yeah. Free. Why is it free? Because there are market makers like Citadel who pay money just to be the market maker for Robinhood because all of these different trades, they get to sit in the middle and make a profit off of every single one. So in a transparent, decentralized system, instead of having massive hedge funds do it, it's you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great that like the sides or the positions are changing. So yeah. with Bitcoin, it's the first time that like regular people like me who have no idea on, and no access to this financial world can uh, start lending uh, and trading and adding liquidity to a market. That's sensational. Yeah, yeah I think so. So at the beginning, you were talking about your prior engagement or work at Singa. And basically, I guess in those games, people are buying virtual goods. And let's now come to the, at the moment, very hyped term NFT. Yeah. And many people dismiss NFTs also in the Bitcoin space. They say it's the next, like the ICO wave in 2017 and they are silly and you can't have digital scarcity with it. What's your opinion on it? And maybe you can explain it uh, to people who have no idea what an NFT is. So I'm, I, I don't think we know. I don't think there's anyone who knows exactly how NFTs will be used in a year or two. I think the one thing that we can say for certain is that they will be used. I also think that they're silly, but the fact that they're silly doesn't mean that they're not here to stay. 
And not all of their use cases are silly. Some of their use cases are extremely serious. And I'll tell you a little bit about that in a moment. But let's talk first about the ones which are easy to shoot down, the silly ones, right? So ICOs, right? So many scams, so much bubble, right? Before that, you had the dot-com, so many scams, so many bubble, right? That bubble gave us the internet and the internet bubble gave us the internet. The ICO bubble gave us DeFi, decentralized finance, which is extremely important. What are NFTs going to give us? As silly as NFTs seem, I, I, I used to say to people, the reason I realized that Bitcoin was going to be valuable is because if scarcity didn't exist, humans would invent it. <laughs> and on the internet, scarcity doesn't exist and humans invented it. We need scarcity because scarcity is what gives value to everything that we do. And for Bitcoiners and for a lot of people in the crypto spaces, it's like lime, Lambos, right? <laughs> What is more silly than a Lambo, right? It's a car that is much more expensive than it needs to be, which doesn't, which needs massively expensive, impractical repairs, and you can't even take advantage of its functions because you're stuck in traffic. But people want the Lambo because mm -hmm. it's a status symbol, because it's scarce. People want the NFT not because of its practical properties, but because it's scarce, because of what it can provide for you. And let me tell you a secret. People want Bitcoin, not because it's useful, because it doesn't, can't do anything, <laughs> right? You can't do anything with a Bitcoin. But that's what makes it perfect money, is that it's in and of itself, it's useless. But as a result, it's the perfect way to measure other forms of value. So NFTs are an extension of this idea of digital scarcity. And... Then you could say, okay, I've got an NFT of a meme. So what? Anyone can still use the meme. I don't control the meme. But so what? When you have a Lamborghini, you don't control the road. You're just sitting there like a dumbass at a midlife crisis, but you feel good. <laughs> and so it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And so NFTs just like that, the silliest NFTs can still be a very big business. But they're also non-silly use cases for NFTs. For example, land, right? Land, how can you own land? There are only two ways that you can own land. One is you sit in front of your house with a shotgun and shout at people to get off your lawn. <laughs> the other is that your property is registered to you in a registry. In other words, there's a piece of paper somewhere that says that land belongs to you. And that is the only reason that the land belongs to you. It's the only reason that the apartment belongs to you. But it doesn't need to be written on a piece of paper. It could be written on a blockchain, and that would be much better. And if it's written on a blockchain, then you can have a token which represents that value and then that token can be placed into a, a lending pool like on sovereign and suddenly you've got decentralized mortgages now that mm -hmm. is an incredibly interesting and exciting proposition because you can get rid of banks entirely so i think nfts are everything from the most silly thing right the, the midlife crisis of our age where, where where people our age are buying comic character nfts which are extremely exciting i love the comic characters, but it's silly. We have to admit that we're being silly. Two extremely serious use cases, like getting rid of the need for government in order to have property. Yeah, it's a wide range of options. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I hope we get to the second one. Yeah, uh, after we experienced the first one and get used to the fact that this is even thinkable or possible, because I think most people can't get their head heads around it around that idea. And do you also see that there will be like, let's say, contracts, copyright licensing contracts implemented in NFTs? Or will this rather be like, you can also do that with a lightning, you can also do lightning art auctions? I don't know. I don't like the idea of copyrights in the first place. Yeah, okay. Oh, so yeah. do we really need the blockchain to enforce the silly idea? That your family can control whether or not someone can read, watch a Mickey Mouse comic years after you're dead i don't know yeah okay i i, I yeah. agree i agree but from the payment side when i'm an artist or a content creator it would be perfect to also decentralize the possibility to earn money for my work for my digital work i think that is possible uh, in some ways so it would require a degree of consensus so for example You could have platforms which are very popular and refuse to, and if they identify an image 
in the same way that YouTube identifies like copyright material, then they pay the artist because they can easily identify to which address they need to pay and they don't need to search through the records. I think that there might be something there. How important that becomes, I don't know. I think people will say you don't need a blockchain for that, but actually you do because the uh, you could do it with a centralized database and centralized services, et cetera, and that's what YouTube tries to do. But it's for the smallest people, right, who don't have agents, who don't who can't go and claim on every single platform because that's a lot of work. Having just a singular database where the big players can read and, and, and have an address which they can instantly pay you is a convenience. And so something like that might emerge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We can talk a little bit about it more, but yeah. I think we're far away from that use case. Right now, I think actually it's the very serious use cases and the very ser- silly use cases which will emerge first and then like the middling use cases will, will, will arrive last. And I think it's also funny that Sotheby's <laughs> does a- a- NFT sales because it's about diminishing the intermediary and here the gatekeeper pr- plays the gatekeeper and says, we are reducing the gatekeepers. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yes, look, silliness is enhanced it's heightened during bubbles. And so we're, we, every single bubble we've had, we've seen a lot of extremely ironic silliness. And the mistake that people make is they look at the ironic silliness and they say, oh, this whole thing is stupid. It's all mm-hmm. tulips. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not. And they don't take a deeper look because right. they think yeah. it's just silly. Yeah. And That's then, right. yeah, they are too late maybe then in the game or they mm-hmm. regret yeah. Not everybody wants to live in the closet and stakes <laughs> <laughs> so hard. Yeah. <laughs> but but I understand it because uh, as soon as you realize how precious like the, the scarcity of Bitcoin is, and that it's like a land, it's like digital property, and there is only so much of it. It's like digital land, except there are only ever going to be 21 million houses. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Imagine uh, how much you'd be willing to pay for a house. <laughs> Or even for a closet. (laughs) Yeah. Dry, really. (laughs) That's true, yeah. So you are just also talking about mistakes. And actually, you mentioned it before, but have there been other mistakes in your professional life that you did? And what did you learn of them? Oh, man, that's a difficult question because there have been so many. I make mistakes all the time. I'm an extremely uh, silly person. I think... I think one mistake that I would say I have allowed myself to make is to be too arrogant at times. And I think when you think something uh, that nobody else knows, it's easy to become dismissive. And so, for example, one of the big mistakes I made, at least from an investing perspective, for example, was I, 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 I knew Vitalik early on, I knew about the Ethereum, I never invested in Ethereum. If I could go back in time, I probably still wouldn't invest in Ethereum, even though I know it's a mistake. But the reason was that I, first of all, didn't, I, didn't, I, I, don't, I never trust myself as an investor, except unless I can see fundamental value. And, the, and I, I thought that Ethereum, because it was going to be flawed, in my mind, would amount to nothing. So I think that's a, that Ethereum taught me a very good lesson, that even if something is flawed, even if it has many silly aspects, even if it has scams, even if they make the wrong decisions, it can provide an immense amount of value. And I think what Ethereum and the Ethereum community have delivered over the last few years is massive advances in the state of the art of how you do everything in the crypto space. It's because of the work that Ethereum did and the Ethereum community did that we are able to build sovereign. So I think certainly having a certain arrogance, which is not unfamiliar territory for many Bitcoiners and having a certain closed mindedness around what's happening in other projects is a mistake that I've been party to. I think in a way, yeah, I don't know. I've made many mistakes, but maybe the biggest mistake that I, I make, and it's got nothing to do with Bitcoin or crypto, is being 
very stressed about the future because that there you because when you do that you punish yourself for misery that hasn't happened yet so you I, I think i might be miserable in the future so i'm going to be miserable right now <laughs> that's a very strange thing to do and you also didn't live in the now then that's right yeah, yeah. i i know that very well <laughs> it's something i also have to like train myself to do to live more in the now yeah because just working and just varying or planning for the future i think it's important to to see your way your vision because otherwise you get nowhere but you also have to recognize today is today and now i'm in this interview with you and that's all that matters yeah yeah i think for many of us who are in this space we're in this space because we have a little bit of a visionary in us we we, we are interested in the future we have a certain optimism or, or interest or curiosity about how things will be instead of how things are It's a huge advantage and it's the whole power of the human brain probably exists only to simulate future situations. Maybe yeah. that and to speak about them, which is what <laughs> we're doing now. But I think we pay a, a price in that we end up living in the clouds or living in tomorrow when in practice we're not there yet. And yeah, you pay a price for it in lots of ways, not just in stress. What do you think do most people overlook when they talk about Bitcoin? Or what do you miss in the public discourse about Bitcoin? I think that it depends who's talking. If it's Bitcoiners talking about Bitcoin, what they're missing is how much Bitcoin could be. How if we want <clears throat> that Bitcoin uh, and hyper Bitcoinization are dependent upon a world in which sovereignty comes to people in all kinds of ways, not just in hodling. So sovereign is a po important part of that, but also other things like decentralizing the internet, introducing more privacy technologies. These are all as important and they are complements to, to Bitcoin. And some of them are being developed in, I dare say, it's the altcoin space, right? Mm. So that's what Bitcoiners tend to miss. What sort of the institutions or the, the traders or the price people seem to miss is the dollar doesn't matter. It's not about... Uh, how much your Bitcoin stash is worth in dollars. Who cares? This is a, this is the only real money that exists right now in the world. It's the only thing which can't be printed into infinity. It's the true, it's the most pure measure of value we've ever had. And so maybe you want to measure how many dollars you have in Bitcoin, but not the other way around. And, and a lot of people, when they first get into Bitcoin or into crypto, they get very excited and they want to trade. They mm -hmm. want to, buy up and buy down and they want to maximize their profits but every single generation has basically one good decision they need to make if they make that one decision in their lives they're, they're taken care of and their children are taken care of in the early part of the 20th century the one good decision you needed to make in the west was going to university anyone who went to university did amazing in the second half of the 20th century the one good decision you needed to make was buy property You yeah. took out a mortgage, you paid it off, and you're, you are rich. Our generation, the one good decision you have to make is just buy and hold Bitcoin. That's all you need to do. If you do that now, any amount, you're going, you and your kids are taken care of. Uh, you just have to be patient and, and resist the temptation because people, the, the nice thing about real estate and universities, which kept a lot of uh, university degrees, which kept a lot of people out of trouble, is you can't trade them. You couldn't, if people could have mm -hmm. traded their real estate gains, they would have lost all of their real estate gains. If people could have traded away their university degrees, there would be people who are sitting on millions of university degrees and millions of people who have none. So get what you can, hold on to it and have a long-term view. Long-term is like 10 years, 20 years. Long-term is as long as you live. Probably <laughs> your children. Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah, great. That That's perfect. The perfect answer already to my last question, which would have been, which advice can you give to young people regarding their future? But basically, you just said it, but maybe you... you yeah, it's basically yeah. that. <laughs> like, I mean, look, if you can become an influencer on Twitter, that's awesome. And if you can learn everything there is about one niche, you can probably make money. But really, the one thing that everyone can do is figure out how to buy or earn some Bitcoin and just sit on And then that teaches you a really important lesson. It teaches you self-sovereignty. It teaches you how to keep your password safe, to keep your identity safe. And if we have a whole generation who have learned that, 
going to change everything else. It's going to change the types of internet services we're willing to use. It's going to change the way we interact with government. It's going to change the way we interact with corporations. It's going to create an entire generation of people who are self-sovereign and self-empowered and have the confidence to control their own data and their own destinies. And so Bitcoin is a gift far beyond the monetary gift. It's going to educate an entire generation to be free. Mm -hmm. I believe so too, yeah. But we have to spread more education around that topic because, I mean, mainstream and all the big exchanges and the corporations, they are taking over and they, of course, they want to stay in the system we have now because they profit from it. And sometimes I'm a little worried that we can't get out the world as, as much as we should. Or, yeah. I, and that's part of the reason why I'm working on Sovereign. That's why I think it's the best use of my time. And if you, with this podcast and whatever else, let people know that there is an alternative to intermediaries. I think that's a big step we can take towards giving people the option and educating people about how they can create a world for themselves where they are not dependent on these third parties. Because the thing that the third parties do, it's always the same. They, they whisper to you. They tell you, I'm going to give you convenience. I'm going mm -hmm. to give you I'm going to take away all of the hard bits. Who else does that? People with vans <laughs> who try to <laughs> attract kids. Like, it's taking advantage of vulnerable people. And what we do when we become adults is we learn to stop being taken advantage of and stop being dependent on others. And the thing to remember about these organizations, they're not your parents. They don't have your best interests at heart. And so if you treat them like they're your parents, you're going to get taken advantage of. Yeah, exactly. Thank you very much for this interview. Is there anything we have missed that you want to tell our listeners? No, I, this was a great uh, opportunity to speak. Thank you very much. I just encourage people to investigate self-sovereignty and a good place to start is sovereign.app. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N.app. And where can people find you? On Twitter, I, maybe? Twitter is one place, and hopefully one day there'll be a decentralized alternative to that too. And on Twitter, I'm at Idaniago, E-D-A-N-Y-A-G-O. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Uh, have a nice day or evening, and I hope maybe one day we can meet in person. And okay. all the best to you and to Sovereign. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye. Thanks so much for joining the Anita Posh Show today to learn more about Bitcoin. You can find the show notes for this conversation on anita.link slash show. If you want to get the best stories in Bitcoin from my point of view in your mailbox, go to anita.link slash weekly and subscribe. And if you have a question or just want to send me some feedback, drop me a line at hello at anitaposch.com. See you next week when it's time for the Anita Posh Show. Music, start with yes, delicate beats. Content, idea and production, Anita Posch.